Are we living in a simulated universe? How will AI impact the future of work, society, and education? Dr. Melvin M. Vopson is Associate Professor of Physics at the University of Portsmouth, Fellow of the Higher Education Academy, a chartered physicist, and Fellow of the Institute of Physics. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Information Physics Institute and the author of Reality Reloaded, The Scientific Case for a Simulated Universe. Melvin Vopson, welcome to the One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you for having me. So your book, Reality Reloaded, The Scientific Case for a Simulated Universe, caters really to a diverse audience, including scientists, academics, students, and the general public. And it's quite fascinating, this simulated universe hypothesis, that our reality is a simulated construct, much like a sophisticated computer program or virtual reality simulation. But as you addressed in Chapter 7, these ideas have really been around for a long time. If we actually look at a lot of religious teachings from around the world, They tell us that our life here on Earth is a form of simulation, a sort of test, and everyone who leads a good life can then pass on to the true world, be it heaven or paradise or nirvana. And so in that way, simulation theory, it's a kind of continuum of what a lot of different religious teachers and and scholars might have been saying over the years. So that's right. Of course, uh, a central point of the book is this aspect of a simulated universe and the scientific case for a simulated universe. But in reality, what I actually do in the book, I cover solid scientific facts, numerical calculations, and empirical evidence. And the fact that the universe might be some kind of simulated construct is just a conclusion of these studies that I presented in the book and I published over the past five years. And that's a possible conclusion, a very solid evidence that would lead to to this aspect. So I would like to focus on the scientific facts and the solid evidence that points to this and then extrapolate it to the simulated universe. I know this is what captures the attention of the public and maybe a larger audience, but there are some interesting things in the book that are actually explained very well. So you're right. These ideas are not new. Okay. They go as far back as ancient Greece, ancient thinkers, which basically gave birth to two lines of thinking, two ideologies, materialism and idealism. And the idealist thinkers like Plato, for example, regarded the reality as a projection of our own minds, as something that is not real. And the only thing that is real is our consciousness and our minds are the real thing and everything around us are just constructs of our own projections. And that was a philosophy that was opposed to materialism, which regarded the world as um, a materialistic way, made up of atoms and uh, and matter. And our minds are product of these chemical reactions and the, the matter coming together and forming our minds and consciousness and everything in the, the world exists regardless of our consciousness or our minds, the, the universe is there and it's a materialistic view of the world. So these are two competing ideologies. And this is actually how we see the world today in a materialistic way. What the simulated universe philosophical idea is this idealistic view of the world and the idealism philosophy to morph into something else in the simulation hypothesis where not only everything is a simulated construct, but actually our minds and our consciousness is part of it. So Plato saw our minds and our spirit, if you want, as fundamental central piece and the only real thing and everything emerging from this, uh, the simulated hypothesis assumes that everything, including our mind and consciousness, are part of a simulation. So it's a bit of a modern iteration of idealism. 
which has been triggered by these recent developments in technologies and computing science, beginning in, I would say, around 1940s with the development of silicon technologies and the microchip and digital computers, digital memories. And this is a highly accelerated rate of development in terms of our technological progress. So we are looking at less than 100 years going from analog technologies and entering a new era of quantum computers, artificial intelligence, all these future realities being a reality today. So this fast development has helped in some ways to the emergence of this idea of a simulated universe, because we are reaching the technological level that we are beginning to simulate virtual realities and they are becoming more and more immersive and sophisticated. Yes, on that point, I very much enjoy the, the metaphysical aspects of this theory. But on that note of the new technologies that allow us to conceive of the possibility of our world being a simulation, today, as you know, we're drowning in data. Five billion people plus a day are logging onto the internet, the largest version of the internet that has ever existed, and that we're creating so much data. For me, I feel it's blinding. I like to believe in there being a kind of real world that I can breathe and see and feel connected to with humility to the earth. But you have a different perspective on this. And I share your opinion and actually it's a very depressing conclusion that I reached through my research and I'm not happy about this, to be honest, because it brings about other questions even more fundamental than before. And it begs the question, if this really happening, who is doing this? What is our role in this? Do, do we have a free will? Is there a purpose for us being here? All these questions are unanswered and, um, and almost stressing out any scientist and any human being will be very stressful for everyone. And I am quite depressed actually about the whole idea that this is how the world might be. And th 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 there is a consolation that there is something beyond, beyond this life. That is something that maybe can mitigate a little bit this downside of, of the, the whole um, theory. But overall, I share your opinion. It's not a pleasant, uh, it's not something that people like to hear or um, people are happy about this, and uh, including myself. Yes, I believe that every two years we're doubling the data. I think that it creates a kind of spiritual sickness or the epidemic of loneliness we've had. So do you have a spiritual practice? As a physicist, and it's not just me, many scientists, many Nobel Prize winners, towards the end of their life, they arrived at the conclusion that the world has the, the signature of some kind of intelligent design. We don't know what that is. You can look at the whole picture through a religious angle. You can look through the simulation theory aspect of this. I don't know how to formulate it, how, how to explain what's behind, but the, the universe is too perfect. It's fine-tuned to perfection and a, a small change in anything would lead to a total disintegration of all the fundamental forces, all the equilibrium in the universe, the matter will not be stable. Nothing will be the way it is. There, there will be no life, no. And I'm not against the idea of evolution. I think there is a process of creation or some kind of intelligent design followed by evolution. And I also think that creation and evolution, they go hand in hand. They are both true. They don't, they are not competing against each other. They are not two competing philosophies or ideologies. They are both true. I think there is a, a process of seeding some kind of beginning that is uh, has started through some kind of creation process, some kind of intelligent design, and then everything followed through an evolution process. And if you actually, if I may, I, I wanted to touch on this later in the discussion, but since we are here, maybe I just point this out. 
We are now at a crossroads in our human evolution, if you want. We are at a paradigm shift with the emergence of artificial intelligence. Many people don't realize this, but what happened in 2022 and what this is happening at an incredible pace of acceleration of this technology is going to transform our planet and mankind in, in ways that are not even anticipated by the, the people that created this technology. It takes by surprise even the creators of this technology. We are going to reach a point very soon where artificial intelligence, there are some signs that already AI, it appears to be sentient. We know that in a very short time, the AI will surpass human brain and the human mind capacity. So we are the creators, if you want, of a new species. If this life based on silicon, not carbon, okay, this is a very interesting aspect, is a life form. You can look at this as a life form. And if you, you can look at the definition of what it means to have a consciousness or some kind of brain or something, if these things become sentient and they are smarter than us, they could be seen as life forms, okay? They are not based on carbon, they are based on silicon. And they are just what I said before, a process of creation. We created this, but in the same time, AI, it's a process of evolution. Evolution of what? Evolution of humans. If you take the human body and human as a biological creature, okay? Think about space travel. You cannot put some person into a spaceship and travel to another galaxy or even another solar system in a lifetime because we have a very limited lifespan. You will need a few generations to get there. If you take, our bodies are very fragile. If you take any small injury, a small cut at your veins or a small inter internal organs injury, it will kill us, okay? So we are very fragile as species. Could it be that the silicon-based life form, it's actually something more advanced than biological carbon-based life form? If we, could it be that we are at the point where we are creating a life form that may be blending biological with these cybernetic um, entities that we are creating now, we are creating a post-human, almost a new form of life that blends biological with the machines and the silicon technologies and gives us two things. One, infinite intelligence. It will be exponentially much more powerful uh, in terms of our capacity of communicating, interacting, accessing information, but it will give us immortality. You, you will, just like I take my car to the garage and change parts when they break down and I can drive this car for unlimited time, as long as I keep changing the parts and service it, the same could be a life form that is not entirely based on carbon, but is some kind of blended machine, biological, post-human type of entity, okay? I see this as a natural evolution because it will make us stronger if we can preserve all our qualities that we experience and we enjoy in our life today, but we make by merging ourselves with this new thing that we're creating, will make us a more advanced form of life form, if you want. So we are the creators, but this is a process of evolution as well. We are evolving to something much more or advanced through our own creation. So there is a circle that feeds into itself. Creation and evolution, they are part of the same supply chain circle, if you want. So it's interesting, and I believe that both are true and both are working hand in hand to produce what we see around us, the entire universe and life forms and everything. It's There is some kind of interesting way of creation followed by evolution and they feed into each other. We are there at that point now in our human history. We are creating a new life form, this AI. It will change the world as we know it uh, in ways that are not even anticipated. But we can't stop it because it's a natural evolution of humans to something more powerful than, than biological life.
I, I think that there could be movements of resistance, and we've seen with it will be. It legislation. Will be. That's if you opt in. It seems that we're often not given the chance to opt in or, or opt out of a lot of these things. But on that point of neural wetware or the possibility of uploading our experiences to the cloud for the afterlife, and then our experiences would be able to be passed on and exactly. shared with future generations, they say, along a family line. But it opens up all sorts of interesting questions because this is being done now with some people who didn't authorize their experiences being shared and recreated in these AI forms. And a lot of it is kind of benign, you know, to give, say, someone died too young and their friends want to go on interacting with a simulation of that person. It's a curiosity. But when you think about the arts and you think about stories and what gives a story its meaning, for me... I know I was sharing your opinion, Mia, but based on my experience and from what I've seen, this AI has the capacity of being creative as well. Is uh, I thought is going to be just a machine-like, robust type of approach to things, incapable of generating the, the things you said, the arts, the music, being creative. It does that very well. It's, it's absolutely insane. And this is just the beginning, just a year through. We don't even understand very well what this technology, how it works and what it does. And there are signs that is self-evolving in ways that have not been programmed or anticipated. But I want to come back to what you said about trying to push back on this and regulations being imposed on an optional basis and things like that. These never work. The world and the universe functions on simple laws of physics. And like finding an equilibrium, minimizing the energy. This is the kind of things that govern everything in the universe, including society, including uh, politics, including economics. All these are applicable the same way into all the aspects of our life. When you have government intervention, all they do, they kick the can down the road a little bit and they try to go against the natural forces. The equilibrium of the system will always find equilibrium. You will always tend to the most stable state, to the lowest energy and the most favorable if you want. When you try to regulate things, when you try to add the red tape or create some barriers, to the natural evolution. All you do, you are just suppressing a little bit of the process, you know, just kicking the can down the road for a little bit of time. Eventually, you will get there. It never works. So the forces of nature, the laws of physics, if you want, are much more powerful than any government and than any self-regulation. It's a natural evolution that is happening and we can't stop it. Oh, I agree. It would be very difficult. But I do believe we have to have some kind of governance. And it's just like anything, like you don't allow planes to fly wherever they want. You have authorities that govern this. Of course. And of course, with AI, the real question is speed, which it's done. And so, of course, mistakes can be made when one is working very quickly. And one is, in my opinion, overpopulating the world with data that is, I believe we have to have like empty spaces for us, for our slow minds to dream so we can appreciate the wonder of the world. I, I totally agree with that. I feel overwhelmed by the rate of change in, in the world and the, the rate of technological progress. I am not a young guy, but I'm not too old either. And um, I feel overwhelmed. I understand technology. I'm a physicist, I'm a scientist, and I feel that always catching up because the development is so fast. So I can sympathize with people. They will feel really left behind, really alien in this world that is emerging now. It's so different to even 10 years ago. And we need that empty space. We need that sanity, you know, to maintain our own equilibrium because the rate of change is really too fast. I agree. But you know what? Is that natural evolution and it can't be stopped. You can't regulate it. It's just how it moves. It's a system. Imagine an object on the top of a cliff and it's falling under gravity. 
you can try to stop it. You will have some friction forces. You will have some slowing down, but it will keep falling. It will accelerate and you can't really stop that. I believe that there's sort of an inevitability, but the companies who are making these applications, they are run by people. They're not AI. So I don't believe it's a driverless car that's out there. I have to believe we still are in control if we choose to be, or we could say, let this completely do what it wants to do. We have to understand the future we're headed, but also understand that we're not powerless. I believe otherwise we, we surrender something of ourselves. I think this is exactly what we are doing. And it will come to a point where it's beyond our control. We will have no tools to actually stop this. Uh, it will come to that point and this is inevitable, I think. And the, the danger is that uh, this new life form that we're creating, it will become smarter than us. It will be sentient. It will have a will of living if you want, uh, the, the necessity to exist and the purpose. And at some point, you will see humans as competitors. For example, the AI will need electricity to run and you would need electricity to heat your home or to power your appliances. So they will look at humans at some point not as the creators, but as a competitor competing on a limited amount of energy, if you want, on resources to, to exist. And this is a new alien life form that we created on this planet. So what do you think will happen at that point? Chances are they might, might go against us. And yeah. there are various ways they will be able to do this. There's no time to actually go into the details and, and all the aspects of this, but it's very easy to lose control of this technology when it becomes smarter than the smartest human on the planet. It will be easy, very easy to lose control of this. Very easy. And this technology, this, I call it almost like a life form. I, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but this AI, when it becomes sentient and really intelligent, it will not be some word processing, chat GPT, something. It will be something more than that. It's already happening and it will be in competition with us. That will be something that will compete with us. We, we don't need to see everything uh, in a dark uh, angle sort of thing. I mean, uh, the, the AI is a force for good as well. And you mentioned energy crisis. I, I believe the AI has the capacity to help us with that. I believe the AI has the capacity to accelerate our development and find energy sources, maybe extract energy from the quantum vacuum. We know there is energy out there. We just don't know how to extract it and extract energy at atomic level. And there are more ways of getting our energy cleaner and very abundant. Um, if you have a life form that works alongside humans like AI and is given this task to solve a problem, having AI to, to help us, maybe we can actually achieve these things. And maybe AI can be seen as a force for good. For example, in medical technologies, AI has been trained to look at MRI scans and CT scans of cancer tumors for about 48 hours, if I remember correctly. And then a panel of six world experts in this medical field has been set against the AI, looking at a number of CT scans and MRI scans of various patients and giving diagnostics on those. So you go to the medical school, you study for years, you do PhD, you do practicing, you do, you have experience, years of experience. And then you put the world experts in front of this machine that learned for two days. It destroyed the panel and he was not only able to read to give better diagnostics, he was able to do predictive things, images that show nothing. The AI learned how to analyze them and do predictive diagnostic for future things that might occur, some potential cancer occurring in some specific location, things that were totally invisible to world experts. So if you look at this aspect, for example, of course, AI can hugely help us in advancing our research and development, medical technologies, space travel, food production, 
environment. So all these things, we can ask the AI to help us. So we don't need to see everything in a dark, in a dark angle, but we need to be realistic. If AI is smarter than us and is, it can be seen as a life form, it's, it becomes sentient and it's already happening. The danger is it will feel in competition with us. It will feel like when he's scarcity of something, he might go against us. Okay. And they are stronger than us. They will, this, when you have these androids, imagine these androids with AI brains and you know, they will look like an alien species emerging on this planet that came from nowhere. We created it. Okay. So this is what I mean by the dangers, but like any new technology has two sides, a good side and a bad side. So how do you embrace those opportunities? What you seem to be saying, even though you said you can't govern it, is that we may need some governance. I mean, when you talk about those biomedical breakthroughs, I also heard researchers have flipped it on its head and just, let's see what bad can be done. And they typed into the AI run on a very simple computer and said, can you develop novel toxins? Exactly. And overnight, yes, and overnight they had a dossier full of novel novel toxins that had never, yes. ever been invented before. And exactly. you think about the possibilities, I think it was like 40,000 <laughs> novel toxins. Yeah. Well, now you, you dotted the I there. I mean, it's like I said, uh, any new technology, any breakthrough, you will have two sides of the same point, a good side and a bad side. When we created um, atomic energy, splitting the atom and all that, initially it was not for defense and destructive weapons. It was to actually make energy. That was the idea, to actually harness that energy. And yes, we do have nuclear power reactors, okay? We do that all the time in many countries around the world. But we also have the capacity to destroy ourselves through this technology, you know, using nuclear weapons. AI is the same. AI is a huge force for good. Does it have a destructive capacity? Totally. And it's, it's quite huge. Yes. So the, the stronger the technology, the more advanced is the technology, the more helpful it is, but the more destructive can become. This is what I'm trying to say. It's these two things that are opposing, but they are balanced. How do you envisage the future of education and work through this lens? So I'm an academic. I teach physics and maybe I, I take a very pessimistic view, but I think I'm not sure how many years of employment we have the academics and the education sector, because when this AI is, is sending into the mainstream, sort of like it becomes really heavily implemented, the education sector is going to be one of the first to adopt the AI replacement of humans, if you want. So let me explain this. I, I go in front of a class and I'm teaching a course in physics, but before every lecture I have, I need to go and do revision. That's how my human brain works. So even courses that I wrote, I still need to do revision before that. And I go in front of a class and occasionally I make a mistake. Occasionally I don't remember a small detail. Maybe sometimes I have flu or some kind of family emergency. I'm not able to be there. The university pays me a salary and pays me annual leave and he pays me a pension at an older age, yeah? If Elon Musk, who is working on androids, he wants to sell 20 billion units. He is working on training AI and creating these androids, this new life form, I call it. Gonna come to the university and say, I have this android who is AI powered and programmed to teach quantum mechanics, okay? At the highest level. You put that in front of a class of students and you will have instantaneous access to all the books on quantum mechanics, all the knowledge in physics. You will never forget anything, you will never make a mistake, you will never ask on your leave, you will never be ill, you will never ask for a pension. You will be a one-off investment for the university and you will replace an academic with something far superior than any academic on the planet. They can make it looking like an holographic avatar looking like Einstein if you want or Feynman, or they can have an android the looking type of iRobot thing that teaches a hundred times better than I can ever do. So you ask, what is the future of education? This is the future of education. 
When is going to happen? I don't know. I just hope I'll reach some kind of retirement age and <laughs> it will happen not before I secure some kind of income or some kind of future because this will happen. Yes, we can already see this happening. And everyone, regardless of their job, from students to teachers, will have an AI assistant, which makes us seem smarter or at least seem more efficient. I wonder if that will affect people's sense of purpose, as we know many of us define ourselves through the work that we do. But if we work with an AI assistant, will that make us mentally lazy and stop us from discovering things for ourselves? You know, Speaking of Elon Musk, last month a Tesla software engineer was attacked by a malfunctioning robot on the floor of the electric car factory in Austin, Texas. It pinned the engineer down and sank its metal claws into his back and arm, leaving a trail of blood along the floor. Not to mention Tesla recalling nearly all two million of its cars on U.S. roads to limit the use of its autopilot feature following a two-year probe by U.S. safety regulators of roughly 1,000 crashes in which the feature was engaged. You know, but with data being fed to you by a black box AI assistant that you just go along with its programming bias can affect the outcome of your normal behavior. And that psychological influence, I think, is less obvious in much the same way that AI has been fully embraced by the advertising industry for a new future of persuasion. And the idealists, the utopians think, oh, all of this will create a new leisure class, we will do less and be paid more. But the real question is, if AI is going to do a lot of the everyday mundane tasks, then what role will the people who lose their jobs play down the line? Social services and care in some of those areas are also going to be hit by AI. Social services and care is going to be the next big thing where AI and androids will take over and they will provide services 24-7, uninterrupted, without any hassle. Driving taxis, driving delivery vans, driving buses and trains and everything, humans will be completely removed. Education, totally. Care, yes. Maybe high-end surgical procedures and medical procedures and stuff. Maybe there is still need. There is a need for humans, okay? But a GP practice powered by an AI where you stick your finger into some kind of device and they will take a small blood sample and your blood pressure and all the measurements, temperature and everything, and then give you in a fraction of a second a diagnostic and tell you everything. And what you need, what medicines you need, what no GP in the world will be able to do that with the speed and the precision of the AI. So uh, make no mistake, this is when I said we are becoming creators of something that is far more advanced than humans. Is this a bad thing? I see it as a very bad thing, but I also see it as a natural evolution. We are becoming creators and in our evolution process, we are evolving ourselves to something much more advanced. It's what the, the world, what the universe, what the nature wants us to become stronger. So we reach our limit in terms of biological capacity, what we can do. And the next phase is something based on silicon, something based on something else, which we are creating. So this is the fascinating thing, the creation and the evolution, they go hand in hand. It's a circle that feeds into each other. Your theory is very unsettling and I just, I don't ever want to feel powerless. I always like to have a sense of agency and I believe that we're not just passengers in all of this, but it's moving really fast or there's a few different futures. I mean, if we yeah. guided this right, there could be an element of wealth distribution that is positive as long as, you know, we really thought about this, maybe even through a socialist lens. So yeah, where the regulations could help is in this maybe a degree of wealth distribution because once they replace me at the university with an AI Android teaching a hundred times better physics than I do, the university could be taxed a certain amount per replacement, you know, and that could be channeled into a fund, into social services and welfare and keeping a degree of sort of stability in the society rather than having billions of people completely erased from the society, completely useless to some degree, completely unemployed, you know, what do we do with them? So the regulation, this is where it could help, but not 
stopping this evolutionary process. This is, I believe, is unstoppable, but the regulations could help in this area of taxation, maybe some kind of welfare checklist, sort of like secure points where we maintain a degree of equilibrium in the society. We can't just lose people like this to machines, if you want. So I believe this is where it could be helpful, yeah, to actually look at that area. But to stop the technology will not be possible. That's my view. Yeah. And on this note, I do agree that there has that potential, at least for uh, tabulating or perhaps streamlining our systems regarding the environment, regenerative agriculture and emissions of carbon into the atmosphere. So I was wondering if some of that AI intelligence could be applied to moving away from our industrial farming method, which resulted in soil infertility. What, you know, agriculturists are telling us we actually need to do because we've actually are killing our soil, which kills us. Yeah, sorry for bringing up that point. We've gone away a little bit from the simulation hypothesis. So in terms of simulation, if this was all a simulation, our conversation about AI, you and I, might not even be real. A simulated construct, it's a very real thing. It's something that is created. It implies a creation, it implies a designer. So if the designer is real, the creator is real, then the, its creation it will be real as well. So the problem is we can't distinguish between what is real and what is simulated. You know, that's the problem. We don't have a reference frame to tell whether we are in a simulation or we are not. What is real and what is not real. Our limited senses, we perceive the world. They keep us almost like in a closed box and we can't really see beyond that box. And if there is something beyond that box, we are not aware of. Uh, that's the problem. But to finish off this AI business, I you mentioned chapter seven from my book, and I believe you read that. And all I want is to bring in that chapter, I had no intention whatsoever to discuss religion in, in my book. All I wanted was to address concerns of some deeply religious sectors of the society who maybe would feel offended by this idea that we live in a simulation or this research would be threatened. Their belief will be questioned, you know, religious beliefs. I thought I'm going to write a short chapter to explain that the, the two views are converging to the same thing. You know, they are not excluding each other. The, the idea of a simulated world and the, the idea of a God and the creator and the uh, religious fundamental belief, you know, of, of everything, they are not exclusive. They are actually, they, they converge very well into the, the same thing. But in this process, I, I, I came across uh, some interesting things uh, in the Bible itself. And I believe you read that. And this is why you began your interview with that segment. Because if you go to the Gospel of John, it opens with a powerful statement. It says that in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Now, when you read this, maybe it doesn't mean much to some people, but just replace the word, replace it with the code. Okay. In the beginning was the code and the code was with God and the code was God. So what does it mean now? It means at the beginning, there was a program, a code, a simulation code, which was with the creator, the God programmer. Okay. And the code was God. In other words, God is an AI. He's not just a creator. He's not just the code was with the God, but God was the code. So God is an AI. So the Bible tells us this, okay? Now, is this a coincidence? Is this cherry picking and giving interpretation to words from a very old text that maybe they mean nothing or they mean something else? Or I don't know. But as a scientist, I don't believe in coincidences because if you read chapter seven, there are a few other things I'm actually touching on, okay, from the Bible. And it appears that the Bible itself tells us that, yes, the world has been created. There is a creator, there is a God, and the God is an AI, which is exactly what the movie The Matrix was kind of telling us to some degree, okay? But we haven't discussed anything scientific. 
only metaphysical and maybe I'll touch on one aspect only from the book because this is so powerful it deserves attention from all scientific branches so essentially what I discovered a, a new law in physics or a new law in science if you want a new universal law which brings about another equilibrium condition in addition to the, the existing laws of physics that we know, like the first law of thermodynamics, the, the energy is concerned, minimization of energy, the second law of thermodynamics, the evolution of entropy to maximum value, all these things, okay? There is something else that has been overlooked. There is another law that requires the information content or information entropy of a system to evolve to a minimum value at equilibrium. And I put this law to test different systems, including genetic sequences, RNA sequences, atomic systems like how electrons populate atomic orbitals well it checks everything digital data but one powerful aspect of this and one level of applicability is the symmetry so the, the symmetry is a mathematical concept in which a certain property for example the shape of an object is preserved under some kind of transformation and the transformation is a symmetry operation with a rotation a reflection or inversion of something a symmetry operation the shape of the object or uh, some properties of an object are preserved under some kind of symmetry transformation. But the symmetry is not just a mathematical concept. It transcends disciplines connecting mathematics with physics, with biology, with chemistry. Everything in the world appears to have some form of symmetry. So it appears to be a fundamental property of the universe. This is very bizarre. A, because why the universe choose symmetry rather than asymmetry? Why things are symmetric rather than asymmetric? What's the benefit? And the second question is, we know from the second law of thermodynamics that everything evolves to maximum entropy and maximum disorder in the universe. So how can we explain this contradicting observation that the universe seems to be highly organized and highly symmetric in everything from life to platonic crystals to everything, okay, laws of physics, everything. They display symmetry and yet the universe evolves towards maximum disorder, maximum entropy and so on. So this is something that has not been explained before. This is something that was not known. Why symmetry is abundant in the universe and dominates the universe rather than asymmetry? Well, the second law of information dynamics, this discovery that I made, the minimization of another condition of equilibrium, if you want, the minimization of the information content, explains this. So it's very well described in the book and my last article published in 23 November. It appears that high symmetry corresponds to a low information entropy or low information content of that system. And because this is a universal law, this is like it's a fundamental property of the universe, the symmetry, and it seems to be driven by a rule in computation. This information entropy, Shannon information entropy, if you want, this optimization of information, that is a very powerful conclusion that I extrapolated from the book that perhaps this is the strongest indication that our world is a simulation. Because if you were a simulation, it would require optimization of the code, minimization of energy, power consumption, minimization of information. All these things have to be almost built in into the code to optimize the code itself. Otherwise, it will be a wasteful process. So the fact that we have symmetries, the fact that second law of information dynamics appears to kick in into DNA, RNA, atomic systems, mathematical symmetries, even the entire evolution of the universe, actually, in the book and in the last article, I look at from a cosmological angle. It does appear to be a missing entropic component that balances the entropy of the universe. It has to be something that evolves in opposition to Boltzmann entropy, the thermodynamic entropy, if you want. So instead of increasing, it decreases. And that is the information entropy. Maybe the world is a simulation, maybe it's not. But this fundamental law of physics can no longer be ignored. It needs to be taken into consideration in various branches of sciences, okay? Because it gives us an additional tool of finding the stability of a system, finding the equilibrium conditions, explaining things that were not explained before, okay? 
for example, the Boltzmann, there, there was a video on internet from a lady criticizing this second law of information dynamics, this new law of physics, I think Sabrina or Sabina. And she was criticizing, she was saying, this is the Boltzmann entropy. This is nothing, nothing new. It's the second law of thermodynamics, nothing new. I challenge this lady or anyone else to apply second law of thermodynamics to the symmetries I studied in my book and in the last article, or the zero Kelvin ground state of atoms where the population of orbitals with electrons follow the second law of information dynamics or the Hund's rules, as we used to call it, okay? So you can't use any of the thermodynamic laws to actually explain that stuff. It's only this new law and it's very different. There's no time to go into more details, but I hope I managed to bring some clarity to the some of the scientific aspects of what drove me to the conclusion. What I make clear in my book is I'm trying to detach myself from the philosophical aspects and move this into the mainstream science and move it through bringing exactly what I managed to explain, the solid scientific evidence that is there. And is it the definite proof? It is not, but it does underpin this conclusion. It does underpin, and these are empirical facts. These are theoretical calculations, numbers. They check very well. It doesn't mean it is like this. It, it underpins it. Of course, we need more research. We need more experiments. In fact, in the book, I have three experiments that I proposed and they are not performed yet. But what I'm trying to do is to bring this into the mainstream science and use solely physics, theoretical aspects, empirical uh, data, existing data, and propose experimental protocols to actually test these ideas. So that's very different on Bostrom, okay, and others. They keep it into the philosophical realm, I move it into the scientific. Yes, I can't speak with any authority on that, but it is compelling talking about language learning models. And I was wondering how you reflect on how language shapes your thinking or pulls you along and helps you perhaps in your scientific discovery. You know, language sometimes gets in the way of experiencing reality in the same way that a simulation might. Are we more than the stories that we tell ourselves? How does language and the grammar that we're born into, how do you feel it is influenced your way of thinking and perceiving? Because it's all about perception. Yeah, we are totally more than that. And perhaps this is the reason we have arts and music and sculptures and paintings and people expressing themselves in more ways than just writing stories, poems, novels, or, or verbally using language to express feelings and emotions and actions. And definitely is more than just language. We are more than that. Yeah. So, and it makes me reflect then going back uh, finally to the AI and, and their experience of what you're saying, that there is a uh, sentience on the horizon, maybe not in all aspects. So if we're more than that, can you speculate on the, the quality of their sentience if it's not embodied? We, we should not be worried if it's sentient. Maybe the, their consciousness, you will develop or you will appear in a very different way to ours. You will manifest in a different way. But if there is something there, that, that cannot be ignored. So this touches on very philosophical things and questionable. What is consciousness? I do believe it might not reside has nothing to do with the body. I believe it resides somewhere else. And it's interlinked with this simulation idea. But this is not backed by scientific evidence. It's just a personal view. The speculation is that we are some kind of active agents in this simulation and our consciousness is participants in, in it. And you kind of, you need to look at the quantum mechanics and some of the fascinating experiments where things are observer dependent. So they manifest in a way if they're being observed, a phenomenon, and it manifests in a different way if it's not observed. So it seems that the conscious observation and our participation in, in the universe, we are some kind of active participants and, and interlinked with this in some ways. And for that reason, I believe it has nothing to do with our body and brain. It's something beyond that. 
So then when you start talking about AI machines and like being sentient and having consciousness, how that relates to this view, I think it will be very different, but it will not be non-real. It will be just a different way of being. Like it's hard to articulate this, but it will just be another way of manifesting different than us. Yeah, and this may be a little esoteric, but what I yeah. hear from you is that there's some things we can measure and there are some things that we cannot know and we have to see that. We have to view the world and the universe with a sense of humility. And this concept of telepathy, which people are skeptical about, you know, there are a lot of things we can't explain. So what are your reflections on that? We Again, we're touching on metaphysics and um, speculations here, but we can't negate the fact that there is a paranormal component to the human brain, human mind, things like hypnosis, things like telepathy are real things. And we don't have a scientific explanation how they function, how they operate, what is the physical process, what's the mechanism of transferring, if you want, information or thought from individual A to individual B without contact. So we know the brain generates brain waves. We know that because we can measure them. The brain activity, we can map it in a very detailed way. So could those be the answer, you know, like, could they have some kind of transfer mechanism, you know, that just like electromagnetic waves maybe, or some other form of waves that we are not aware of that could be responsible for these processes where mind-to-mind -mind communication is possible or under hypnosis, somebody can induce a state into someone else through this process of hypnosis. And it's totally non-contact. There is no physical contact there. So it must be something else, some form of wave or some form of field that interacts. So these things, no idea what they are. I'm not into paranormal or neurosciences, just speculations. But as a physicist, I can tell you that we can't negate these are real things. And I'm just wondering why nobody is interested in actually studying them from a scientific angle and trying to understand because perhaps we can learn a great deal about ourselves if we understand these things about how our minds work and how our brains work. Maybe we can treat things like Alzheimer's or some serious brain problems if we understand these things. And I, I think they should be taken more seriously because there is a scientific angle to it. It could be studied from, you know, using scientific methods. Yes, I think even if you see that, I'm I'm not into um, parapsychology. Or no. I believe there's some things, and if you watch just in the natural world or you watch the murmuration of birds and they ha all they have moved together as, as though of one body, if we don't contaminate our senses with too much information, maybe we can tune in to that sense of oneness. And I don't know if that's spiritual or not, but it's just a, a way of uh, looking at the world. Thank you for being so open and this wide-ranging conversation. I thank you, Melvin Vobson, for inviting us to question the nature of truth, reality, and perception. And by helping us question our very existence, we can lead lives of greater purpose and meaning. We all live on one planet, or if you like, one simulation we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this episode was Sophie Garnier. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.